What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. I came across some practical tips that can help you improve your life. You've probably heard some of these before, but just bear with me. Listen more than you speak. Isn't that good advice? I think that sometimes we all could benefit from that. God did give us two ears and one mouth for a reason. You probably heard this one too. Believe nothing you hear and only half of what you see. The other day I came across this video on social media where they made a tie-dye t-shirt and a toilet bowl. And I showed it to some of the young ladies here and they said, Brian, that was a scam. That's fake news. Didn't happen. So even something we see in a video may not happen. So believe nothing you hear and only half what you see. Never speak evil of others. How appropriate is that in our day and time today? Where we are so quick to speak evil of so many different people. Especially if they don't vote the way we do. Here's a good one. Eat healthy and exercise regularly. It's good. Get your steps in. Drink your water. Do the good deeds. Here's another good one about your health. Don't abuse drugs or alcohol. I don't have any articles or stats to back this up, but I would go out on a limb to say that if you choose not to abuse drugs or alcohol, you will live a longer and happier life. But if you choose to abuse those things, your life can end a whole lot sooner than you think. Here's another one about finances, which is very appropriate for our American culture. Live below your means. Yeah. Here's another one. If you're into investing, this is the principle that we should all live by. Buy low and sell high. Sometimes it's easier said than done. Here's a good one. Always hope for the best, but expect the worst. Here's one my dad taught me. Measure twice and cut once. That's good advice. Here's another good one. Don't procrastinate. In our high media craved culture. We procrastinate too easily by getting our phone out and wasting hours upon the internet or social media. I like this. I live by this one. Done is better than perfect. I will never preach a perfect sermon, whether you agree to that or not. No comment there, please. But my sermon, your lesson that you might teach will never be perfect. So let's just do our best and offer it to God as an offering and expect him to have the results. Now, here's a good one that we can all apply to our life in this day and time, especially with so much time consumed by watching TV. Read more books and watch less TV. Now, these are practical instructional tips that can make our lives a whole lot better. Now, I said all of that to lead into this thought that the writer of Hebrews is giving to us in this concluding chapter of this amazing book in the New Testament. He is concluding here by giving us practical, instructional tips on how we can better not just live life in general, but how we can better live the Christian life. Last week, we looked in verses 1 through 6 about how we can have these instructions of, of, of displaying love, of honoring marriage, and being content. And he continues his thought here 
about the basic instructions for the Christian life. So the title of my sermon today is simply this, The Basic Instructions for the Christian Life, Part 2. But this time, from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 17. So hey, these tips that I share with you, they are good to live by. They are. They can help you. But the greatest source of help that you can have instructing you in your Christian walk is not some Reader's Digest article, but it is the very words of inspiration called the Bible. So this morning, I want us to draw our attention to the book that can not just instruct us in life, but they can transform us to live an eternally impacting life on this world right now. Now that said, I want to ask this question again. A similar question I asked last week. What are the basic instructions for the Christian life from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 17. Now last week, remember, we talked about this idea of honoring marriage. We talked about this idea of being content. And we talked about this idea of displaying love. Those are all part of, of these concluding words that I believe, you know, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. I'm not going to get a fight about it. But I believe that Paul's writing here and he's preaching this sermon that was recorded. Perhaps Luke recorded it. I don't know, but it's my best guess. And so Paul, if he is the writer, is concluding with this last conclusion part of his sermon to say, hey, you need to live this way if you want to have a great impactful life as a Christian in this world now. And he comes to verse 7 through 17. And before we dive into this text, I want to share with you, if I could summarize these several verses in my own words, this is how I would summarize it. The Christian life is a call to honor each mentor and to worship the Savior. The Christian life is a call to honor each mentor and to worship the Savior. Now, I believe that the greatest mentor we can ever have is the Holy Spirit and His Word. But there are times in our lives where we don't understand the Bible like we should or we are a new believer or we haven't matured as far as perhaps we, we should have in God's eyes. And he raises up different people in our life to help instruct us in the very word of God. And today what's interesting in our passage in verse 7 and in verse 17, the, if I may say it this way, the conclusion and, and the introduction of this passage is all about honoring spiritual leaders that we've had in the past and that we have in the present. And in between, sandwiched in between the idea of honoring our spiritual mentors, he is declaring we need to not worship the Old Testament system of law, but we need to worship this idea of grace found in one figure, Jesus Christ. He is the one we worship today. So my brothers and sisters, the Christian life is a call to honor each mentor and to worship the Savior. But remember, this book is, is a declaration in a sermon form about how Jesus Christ is greater than everything the Old Testament had to offer. Greater than Moses. Greater than Aaron. Greater, in a sense, than the laws written by Moses. Greater than Aaron, the priest, the high priest. Greater than the angels. Greater than every part of it, the sacrifices. It's all pointing us to this idea that Jesus is greater and superior to everything the Old Testament had to offer. And as in this passage, we see clearly that these Jewish believers were continually being tempted to go back to their old Levitical Deuteronomic laws and systems of sacrifice. And the writer here is urging them 
and pleading with them in these five warning passages scattered throughout and now in his conclusion, don't go back under the law. Honor those who have taught you the true things about Jesus. Now he's the Messiah and worship him exclusively and none other. That being said, I want to draw your attention today to four ideas found in this passage or these four instructional practical tips on how we can better live out our Christian life from this text. In verses 7 through 9, we're going to speak about how we are to honor those who have taught us the Word of God. In verses 10 through 14, we're going to consider this idea of how we need to reverence Him who is called the Son of God. In verses 15 through 16, we're going to discover how we are called to offer our sacrifice of praise to God. And then we're going to conclude with verse 17 about how we are commanded to respect those who are leading us to God right now in the present. Now, that being said, may I draw your focus now to verses 7, 8, and 9. The first of four thoughts I want to share with you is this. Honor those who taught you the word of God. Honor those who taught you the word of God. Now, it's interesting. The more I begin to meditate in verse 7 and verse 17, there's obviously a connection here. In fact, you can go into verse 24 three times in chapter 13 of Hebrews. The writer is emphasizing how we are called to honor these leaders in our lives. Not, not just like a president here. There's other passages about political and, and secular leaders in our world. This passage is clearly, it's obvious that it's in the context of the local church and spiritual mentors in our lives. But in verse 7, the more I meditate here, the more I'm convinced of speaking of those that have taught us in the past. And likely ones who have already gone on and walked through the doorway of death into eternity. But verse 17 is about those that are right now in our life investing into our lives as Christians and mentoring us. So look at verse 7, 8, and 9. It is, is in the thought of, of our previous mentors. Those who, maybe when you were a teenager, when you were a child, maybe, maybe your parents were involved in that. Maybe a Sunday school teacher, maybe a youth pastor, maybe a pastor. I don't know. But, but whoever those individuals were investing into your life and teaching you God's word, we are called to honor them. Here it says, remember. This means literally to exercise your memory. That's something we don't do a whole lot of today, do we? We, we are, are, are so quick to just turn the television on for hours a day so we can just not think. We get our phone out and we mindlessly scroll up and down social media. We are so tempted to not use this idea of memory. Maybe that's the reason why there's such a rise in dementia and Alzheimer's. I don't know, but it seems likely. But nonetheless, it is in this passage that the writer of Hebrews is reminding us that we need to exercise our mem memory and remember and never forget the ones who taught us the word of God. It says, remember them which have the rule over you. Now, when we think about leadership in the church, the leadership in the church is not a dictatorship. What you will find in the scriptures is you have people who are leading with a humble spirit, a, a spirit of service to the community and body of believers that they are a part of. But there's never this idea of a popish dictator who's ruling with an iron fist in the church. It's not there. The idea here is that, that these people who are leading us are doing so with humility and grace, desiring to teach us God's word. And as we think about our context here at Clearbrook, many of you 
have been here since the early 80s when the church was established. And that was, that's awesome. You've been around to, to know that there was a guy named, named Shiflet who was the original pastor, the founding pastor of our church. Not, not the founding pastor of this building, but the founding pastor of the church. And it was in the early 80s when Clearbrook Baptist adopted this building and purchased it. And now for all these years, we've been meeting here and worshiping the Lord here. But then you had another guy come on briefly, Curtis Atkins. Some of you might have been here. Most of us weren't. Then you had another guy named David Wickline. He was here for just a few years. Now, the first few pastors of the church here were just here for about two years or less. Then you have a guy named Chester Likens. How many of you remember Pastor Likens? How many of you were here when he was here? Yes, many of you were. He was a man who was, was not infallible, not perfect, but he was a fallible man seeking to do the will of God here in this context. And God used him. There's so many times I have conversations with many of you and you're often referring to things that he said in his sermons and you're honoring him in that way. He taught you the word of God. Then after Likens, we have Red English, Pastor English. He was the pastor when I came here. He was a little different than Likens in many different ways. And he really emphasized walking through the scriptures and teaching God's word as it is God's word. Not seeking to bring our opinions to the word, but seeking to draw our opinions from the word. Amazing. I learned so much underneath his leadership. Then, of course, we had uh, somebody uh, here before me uh, for a very brief time named Aaron McBride. And we, throughout all of these different pastors in the past, we have learned something. Sometimes we've learned, hey, we should do this. And sometimes we learned, hey, we should not do that that way. But nonetheless, here, the writer of Hebrews is reminding us that there are people in our lives who have taught us God's word. And they, might have not, they may not be in our context today. They might have walked through the doorway of death or maybe they moved on to another ministry assignment. I don't know. But nonetheless, we are called to honor them. And as I think about verses seven and eight, I begin to, to, to think about how we are to honor our mentors by imitating their faith in God. As we look at a guy like Pastor English, as we look at a guy like uh, Pastor Likens, those are the two that had the longer service here, so I'll emphasize them more so than the others. That as we think about those two individuals, we know that the more we were around them, their flaws did come out. They were not perfect, but they were striving in their faith to worship God and lead us to God in a greater way in understanding. And so as we recognize they were fallible, we need to understand that those fallible traits we set aside and we try to mimic their walk with Christ as it is honest and true to the word as they were following Jesus. One of the reasons why I think Paul wrote this text is because of the language here in verse seven. Because he says to follow me as I am following Christ. And here it's a very similar aspect as he wrote in other epistles. He's saying, remember those. And, and, he, and he gives this idea of, of follow after them whose, whose faith we are to follow and consider after they have spoken to us the very word of God. So we are to imitate them, not perfectly, not wholly, but as they are teaching us and as their teaching is right and orthodox, according to the word of God, we follow them. But then it says, verse 8, it speaks about this idea, or before we get to that, the idea of, of whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, this last part of the verse, is the reason why I believe this is speaking about past mentors in our walk with God. Overseeing us. 
But then verse 8. I often have wondered, why is verse 8 following verse 7? Verse 8 is a verse that we come to and we describe the immutability of Jesus Christ. How he does not change. His character remain, God's character remains the same from eternity past to eternity present and in, here and now in time, space, and matter. He remains the same. But this verse is given the idea that leaders and mentors will come and go in your life. But there's one leader and mentor that will always remain the same. And his name is Jesus Christ. And today, my brothers and sisters, we need to, yes, honor those who have gone on before us and who are seeking to help us in our walk with Christ. But we need to imitate, ultimately, we are to imitate and, and pattern our lives after Jesus Christ and him alone. But then verse number nine, it speaks about not being carried off or carried away or carried about with these strange and diverse teachings or doctrines. And as I think about verse number nine, I, I think there's another way we can honor our mentors, not just by imitating their faith in God, but also by meditating in the word of God. You see, a good mentor is not gonna control you to only believe what they believe. A good mentor is gonna say, here's what everybody believes, here's what I think is right, and now you go off and you study it for yourself. That's a good mentor right there. A bad mentor says, you don't need to worry about anybody else what they believe, here's what I believe, and this is final. Now in certain areas, we can be like that. But in many areas I've come to, a, to believe in the Bible, we don't have to be that dogmatic about. But here, we see that these Jewish believers who affirmed that Jesus was the Messiah, they are being tempted to going back to these other ways of the past. Now, just recently, I had a conversation with these two ladies at the Roanoke County Library. Uh, they were from the Kingdom Hall. And I, I just walked up to them and I said, hey, you know, the other day I was reading in the book, of, I think it was Isaiah. And I read this phrase. It says, it said something like, uh, I am the first and the last. And I just want to know, could you explain to me who that was referring to? And they get their Bible out and they go to Isaiah and it says, speaking about Jehovah. I said, oh, okay, great. Well, you know, I read another verse in Revelation the other day recently and it spoke about how, how whoever's speaking in, in, to these churches is also called the first and the last. Could you explain to me who that is? They said, oh, that's clearly Jehovah. And I said, well, how about in chapter one of Revelation where it says, it, it says he's the first and the last, the beginning and the ending, and it says he was alive, but he's now dead. Who's that referring to? And they said, oh, well, that's referring to Jesus. But he's not Jehovah. Now, I don't know, man. I mean, I don't know how clear you can get. You go to Isaiah, it says first and last. You go to Revelation, first and last. You come to Jesus speaking. He says, I'm the first and the last. He says, I am in John's gospel. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, listen, here in this passage, we see this idea that some people are going to take the Bible and twist the Bible and try to reveal to you other things about Jesus, how he wasn't fully divine. I submit to you that the Bible is ultimately clear that Jesus, who was the word, was God in eternity past who created the world. He was. And just as we have cults and groups today seeking to, to push us to believe strange doctrines, the same for these Jewish believers. But notice here, it speaks about these meats here in verse number nine. It speaks about this idea that they were being tempted to, at least I think what it's referring to, they were being tempted to say, I am more spiritual than you 
because I am practicing these Levitical laws about meat. I'm eating the clean ones and I'm not eating the unclean ones. And that I'm involved in offering these meats up in a sacrifice to God. When we know that you could eat salmon and rainbow trout and good old fried chicken. Whereas somebody else would eat pork and catfish and other meat. And that does not equate spirituality. I'm not closer to God because I eat turkey and chicken and deer burger than you if you eat pork and real bacon, as they say, or whatever else. No, that does not equate spirituality. And here this passage is reminding us that, that true spirituality, now that we're in this period of grace, is found in Jesus Christ. And we understand that. And here we need to understand that when we meditate in God's word, we will discover when people are trying to lead us astray. And so I urge you, don't be caught up in some of these wrong beliefs that don't line up with the totality of scripture. We are called to honor those who taught us the word of God. But now may I draw your attention now to verses 10 through 14. Secondly, remember this passage is all about honoring our mentors and worshiping the only God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now sandwiched between this idea of honoring our, 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 those who are spiritual mentors and leaders in our life, sandwiched in here, now we're going to see the focus is going to, to be a comparing and contrasting on the old system of law with the new system of grace. And how the old system of law is inefficient to lead us ultimately to God in heaven. But the new system of grace in Jesus Christ pushes the doorway wide open so we can walk through and come to God by faith in His Son, Jesus. And notice here in verses 10 and 11, we see this idea of, of the Old Testament's in mind. So let's reverence God's son who is typified in the Old Testament. It is in verse 10 and verse 11, we see this idea of the, the day of atonement with the high priest. Now remember, in the Old Testament, maybe if you've read Leviticus or Deuteronomy recently, you, this might refresh and jar your memory, but there were all these different offerings in the Old Testament. They would do. And sometimes these offerings would, would take an actual animal, they would, they would sacrifice it. And then after they would sacrifice it, the priest and sometimes others would consume the meat as part of the offering. But there were some offerings that they were prohibited from consuming the food. And one of those was the sin offering on the day of atonement. When the high priest would, would take himself, only himself, into that holy of holies and there offer the blood on the mercy seat. And there, the, 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 the sacrificed animal, they would take that animal and they would take it outside of the gate of the place. And there they would burn it outside of those walls. And here, the comparison here is simply that the Old Testament system referencing as the altar is not in comparison to the New, New Testament sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He says, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. Verse 11, it says, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. So it is in this passage, verses 10, 11, we see that the writer is gonna use this as a springboard to teach us about how this Old Testament system of law is simply pointing us to a New Testament system called grace found in Jesus. And so now verses 12, 13, and 14, we see this demonstrated, how we are called to reverence God's Son who is not just typified in the Old Testament, but crucified in the New Testament. 
You can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of those perspectives is highlighting how the king, the servant, the son of man, and the son of God died for the sins of humanity on the cross 2,000 years ago. And this gospel is open to all of those. That is the general call of God's salvation to all people. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, we urge you. Jesus was crucified so that guilty sinners like you and me could experience God's amazing grace and forgiveness. It is in this passage we see this word wherefore. Remember, anytime you see this term in the New Testament or Old Testament, you got to discover why it's therefore. Wherefore or therefore are similar words in the original language. It's a connecting term. But to elaborate on. And he just references this idea of the high priest offering for the people's sin. And he says, wherefore Jesus also. I love this verse because it is a reminder that the purpose of Christ coming is to sanctify those who believe in him before God. He says, wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. Now, as I shared with you before, the blood of Jesus wasn't nothing mystical or magical. If Jesus was out and about in his daily routine, perhaps as a carpenter, and he cut himself while he was doing his carpentry skills, you could not take that blood and pour it on your body and your sins are gone. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose was in the very moment when he died on the cross, that blood that was shed was an atonement for, for the, those who would believe in him to be ransomed from their sin. And it's in this passage we see this being displayed. But the phrase here, suffered without the gate, I begin to think, well, what, in the, what does this mean? Well, just as the high priest would take that animal and take it outside of the gates of that place of worship and, and burn that animal there and it'll be consumed by the fire, the Bible speaks about how Jesus was the Lamb of God who would be slain and how Jesus would be sacrificed outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And I have stood and seen that hill called Golgotha that looks like a skull. How it is outside the walls, if you will, of the great old temple. And there it was when Jesus suffered outside that place. Verse 13 goes on to, to mention how, how as a result of what Jesus did, let us go therefore to him without the camp, bearing his reproach. In other words, now that the work of the sacrifice has been done. Let's run to Jesus because what he did on the cross satisfies the, the wrath of God the Father concerning our sins. And then he says, for we have no continuing city. Remember, this is written to Jewish believers who valued the ancient Near Eastern cultures, specifically Jerusalem. He said, the city, Jerusalem, is going to come to an end. These empires and kingdoms will run and go. They rise and fall. But there's one city that we desire to go after, and that is the city to come when God establishes his kingdom on earth. And we can be part of that kingdom even now through Jesus Christ, his son. Reverence God's son who was crucified in the New Testament and typified in the Old Testament. Let's see here. Are you reverencing him who is called the son of God? When you say Jesus is the son of God, you are declaring that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. Messiah, God incarnate. You say, I don't know if I believe that. Isaiah said that he'd be Emmanuel. The New Testament writer said in Matthew that Emmanuel is God with us. So God came with us. 
to live with us through Jesus. But now may I draw your attention thirdly today. What is the next instructional, practical tip that this author is reminding us to be involved in as a Christian? Well, so far we talked about honoring those who taught you the word of God and reverencing him who is called the son of God. But now check it out now, verses 15 and 16. Thirdly, offer your sacrifice of praise to God. Offer your sacrifice of praise to God. In verse 7, we have had people just like they had teach us about the word. They came in, in this context, they would go into the Old Testament passages and highlight how the Messiah is this one we call Jesus and how he died and how he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And don't be carried away back and be tempted, even though you're tempted, don't be carried back into this Old Testament system of law. Because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the law through his sacrifice. And now as a result, he says in verse 15 and 16, this, now that we have seen the sacrifice of Christ with our eyes through the canon of Scripture called the Bible, but in their eyes, some of them might have seen it for themselves, perhaps, perhaps not. But they heard the stories. Some of them, especially the apostles, saw him visibly. Some were there surrounding the very place where he died. And, and now, as a New Testament believer... The good news is, is the book of Hebrews reminds us over and over again that we don't have to build an altar anymore. We don't have to go to an altar. And I know as much as our culture likes to call this place up here an altar, this place, theologically correct, is not an altar. The altar of the New Testament was the cross where Jesus died. Now, if you want to call this an altar where you come and lay down your burdens before God, that's okay. But remember, theologically speaking, the cross is the altar where Jesus died for the sins of the world. And now it is in this passage that he says that as a result, we don't have to bring our animals that we raise and offer them to God as a sweet-smelling savor in his, in, in his eyes. We are to bring our sacrifice of praise. And notice here, he says, by him, therefore, as a result of what Jesus did for us on the cross, now we have got to bring, we've got to offer, we have to lay down this sacrifice of praise to God. But not just a one-time thing. It says, read it with me, continually. Would you say that again with me? Continually. One more time. Continually. As we read Verse 15, we see this continual sacrifice of praise to God is to be offered, but it's to be done with this clarification, with the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So offer your sacrifice to God with humble gratitude. If you've been saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and you put your faith and trust in him alone and, and he has saved you, then all we can do is, is marvel with what Christ has done. And we can't help but say, God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for reconciling us. Thank you for washing our sins as white as snow. And then he says in verse 16, that, it, that it's the beginning. 
The beginning of our sacrifice is to praise God. But as we're getting in this mode of worshiping and praising God, it will be demonstrated with acts of service in the community. And he says, verse number 16, do good and don't forget to communicate to others. In other words, be involved in the community by doing things that honor God. So consider this, offer not just your sacrifice to God with a humble gratitude, but with a charitable attitude. Generosity. Benevolence. Charity. The King James uses that word charity. And oftentimes that word charity comes from the sense of of agape love, reminding us the highest form of love is found in God. And that his greatest source of charity to you and me was the cross. And here we're reminded that we can point others to Jesus by being charitable givers and generous donors in our community. Now that could mean going to the rescue mission and feeding them. It could mean going to the rescue mission and praying over them. It could mean going to the rescue mission and singing songs that help them. It could mean going to an area and writing a check for some place to, to feed those who are homeless or to feed those in some other country who are less fortunate than we are. There are so many different ways we can be charitable. It also gives the idea that when somebody like a brother or sister here in the faith is struggling with, with maybe finances or their bills, we can step in and help them in that time. That doesn't mean that they need to abuse that charitable gift, but we are called to not hold back what God has given to us. Check it out now. It says, for what? For, for with such sacrifices. So check it out now. The sacrifice of praise to God, the sacrifice of doing good, the sacrifice of, com- of communicating God's goodness to others through our words and through our actions. It says, this, these sacrifices, notice the plurality of sacrifice here. These sacrifices to God are well pleased in his eyes. That's amazing. So, the sacrifice of the Old Testament. We see they would bring these lambs. They would offer them without spot and blemish once a year on that day of atonement. And it would be a well-pleasing sacrifice to God. We look in the, in, in the altar of the New Testament. There at the cross, that sacrifice of the Son of God was well-pleasing in the Father's eyes. And now as he looks to your life and my life, he sees these sacrifices of praises, these sacrifices of doing good in the community, and sacrifices of, of sharing God's love through our words is something that is well-pleasing in his eyes. Amazing. The Christian life is a call to honor each mentor and to worship the Savior. In verses 10 through 16, it gives a sense of worshiping our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in verses 7 and 17, it gives the idea that we are called to honor our mentors of the past. And now we're going to see our mentors in the present. Look in verse 17. Now, before I get into this verse, I want you to know that that sometimes these verses can be challenging for me to preach about since I I am one that it's directly applied to. But if I ignore this verse, I will be doing a disgrace to you as a church body here in the community. So I am going to, let's pretend for just a moment, I am not your pastor. And I'm going to speak as a guest pastor to our church this evening from this verse, or this morning rather. In this verse, we see this idea, fourthly and finally, respect those who lead you to God. Verse 7 is about past leaders in the church. Verse 17 is about present leaders in the church. 
it says obey. Would you say that with me? Obey. Now, this does not mean that a pastor is to be a dictator and rule over with a controlling spirit every member in the body. That's, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't do that. And so the way I can best explain it is by these two statements that I'm going to summarize with you from this verse. I believe the first half of this verse is, is talking about this. Respect your leaders by obeying their sound homily. Now that word homily is, is a fancy word for sermon, okay? So when, when, a, when a leader like myself is teaching and preaching God's word and it is sound, you do your homework, you go check it out and you realize, okay, what they're saying is right and I, I, I have to obey it because what they are saying is, is directly the word of God. It's not their opinion, it's not their preference. So this idea of obeying, by the way, the word obey here in the original language, it gives the idea that you're gonna be persuaded by what they have taught you after checking it out that it is sound teaching. So your job as a believer in a church like this or anywhere you might go is to not just hear the word of God being declared as the word of God, but you're to take what is said and sift it through your own study of God's word. And now there might be times when a guy like me will preach and I might come to a wrong conclusion. But hopefully as I've matured, I've tried to, to, to put stakes down to say, hey, I'm dying on this hill and these other little minor hills, I'm just going to lean on. And if you disagree, that's okay. But things that are clearly taught in scripture, we've got to be on the same page about. And we've got to obey. I've got to obey it as I teach it and preach it. And then it says, submit. Would you say that with me? Submit. One more time, please. Submit. This is a taboo term in our culture. I mean, the Bible says that wives are to submit to their husbands. And the Bible says that church members are to submit to their elders and pastors and leaders. That's taboo. What if I don't like them? What if I don't like my husband, Brian? Well, tell you what, when you get to, when you get to heaven, you ask God what he meant by that passage. You say, well, what if I don't like you? Well, that's okay. God will forgive you later. But that does not mean that you can throw out what I say or a guy like me says because you think that I am crazy and loony in the head. Submission here, yes, earlier, it gives the idea of, of being persuaded that what is taught is true. But this means once we've been persuaded that what is taught is true, we are to yield and surrender our members to what was said. And so respect your leaders by yielding to their sound authority. Now it is it's obvious that a guy like me could abuse the pulpit. Could. I could use the pulpit to teach my own agenda and preach my own message. That's why it's important that we walk through the Bible. And if you're ever in a church and they're not walking through the Bible, it's a good idea to leave that church because the reality is, is they may not be teaching you the Bible. They might be teaching you their opinions. God's oracles are far greater than man's opinions. And so there may be times when I come to a passage that is controversial and you'll be like, well, I don't know if I see it that way. If it's a minor issue, okay. But if it's a major issue like the deity of Christ and the sacrificial atonement of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, his ascension, his, and his, his decision to establish his kingdom, listen, that's different. We've got to stand on those things together. And here it says that, that we are to obey their leadership we are to submit and yield to their leadership. Why? Why? Because 
They are overseers of our spiritual lives. It says they are watchers for our souls. This is the similar idea of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Have you ever read Ezekiel? It talks about the watchmen out overlooking the city, protecting the city. The idea of a pastor, a, a, a godly pastor, a biblically sound pastor is guarding the sheep from the wolves that can creep in. And so here we see Paul, or the writer, is, is speaking about how these leaders are watching for your souls. And it says that people like me will give an account for people like you. And that's tough business. And I might say this, that if at some point in your life you have experienced a nudge for ministry, maybe you sense the Spirit of God directing you into that, let me just say this. This is my opinion. If you can do something else with your life and you can sleep at night, do that. Because this role as a pastor is not to be taken lightly. So you can sense somebody's called is when, when they, they might go work at Food Lion. Yeah, been there, done that. And it just doesn't satisfy them. They might work at Simonized Car Wash in Knoxville, Tennessee. Hey, been there, done that. It just doesn't satisfy them. I, I, somebody like me has, has, a, has an urgent, urgent desire to preach and teach God's word and to lead people. Those are the ones who are called to that by God. Now, certainly there's times when those people are called for a season and sometimes they're called for a long period like their whole life. But here it says they're, they're doing this because they feel called and they're going to give an account for your lives. And as we read in verse 18, we should pray for those that are in leadership because of that. But then check it out now. He says they're watching over your souls. They'll give an account and, and, and we are to obey and submit to their leadership that is sound. Because when... Church members, submit to the sound, orthodox leadership of the elders of the church or pastors of the church or pastor of the church. They have joy and don't have grief. Now, may I be as so bold to say this? That let's imagine you're married. Well, many of you are married. But let's say in another life you're married to somebody else. And, and all that person did was tell you, man, you make the bed wrong every morning. You're not cleaning that toilet right. The toilet seat should be left down, not up. You know what? I don't like the way you drive. But you never offer to drive. I mean, imagine if, if, if all your spouse did was nag and complain and bicker and, and backbite. And then when they're around other people, they're talking bad about you. How would that make you feel? All I'm saying is you probably wouldn't be married too long. You might be trying to figure out how you can annul that marriage or how you can get out of that marriage. Hey, I'm just being real with you. People think that way. But the reality is, is, is there's a spirit in the modern church today when it comes with church members and church leaders. The temptation for a leader like myself is to rule with an iron fist and to use the pulpit as a place to beat people up in the head. But then the temptation for church members is to use every opportunity as possible to do the exact same thing for those leading. And so if the only time I come to you and I'm talking to you 
about things you're doing wrong, eventually you see me coming, then you're going to start going the other way. And in like manner, if, if the only time you come to me and you complain about, you know, the sermon I preached or you complain about how something is being cleaned or you complain about how something is done or you complain about this or you complain about that, then chances are I'm probably not going to want to be around you just being truthful. And here the Bible is reminding us that leader, leading and following is a two-way street. When leaders are leading in a sound, godly way, it invites the followers to obey and submit. So I invite you to pray for me as I will pray for you that we, that I can lead in a way that will invite you to follow and that you will follow in a way that invites me to lead. That being said, I came across a quote by Chuck Swindoll in his commentary in this passage, and I was so moved by it, I want to share it with you. In a constantly changing, unreliable world, Jesus remains the same. Only in him can we place our faith, cast our hope, and know how to love. That's amazing. Our faith is not found in those who have mentored us in the past or who lead us in the present. Our faith is found in the one who leads us ultimately to saving faith, and that is Jesus Christ. The Christian life is a call to honor each mentor and worship the Savior. Would you bow your hearts with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRiles.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.